You're listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode 11, 500 Shades of Grey, or Nosferatu. So we've finally reached it, Nosferatu, one of the most influential vampire films in history, but also the Fifty Shades of Grey to Dracula. Yeah, it was the, we resemble but are totally legally distinct from the Dracula Guild. Yeah. No, you're not legally distinct in any way, cough up. But I changed the names. I assume you're at least on some level familiar with Nosferatu. If you haven't seen the film, you're certainly familiar with the imagery of it. The this same. is... F.W. Murrow's adaptation of Dracula, because let's be honest, that's what it was. It was it's a hugely influential example of German expressionism from 1922, and it was almost completely lost to history because the Stoker family sued for copyright infringement and won, and every copy was supposed to be destroyed. This is those cases where you're kind of glad that the plagiarists sort of won. <laughs> Because it's such a beautiful, such a strange and incredibly influential film. Many of the markers of what we consider vampire tropes really originate from this story. The whole element of vampires dying in sunlight. Yes, in the original book Dracula, um, Dracula was weakened by the sunlight, but he wasn't killed by it. There's, you know, lots of scenes of him walking around in the day. Like even the um, Bram Stoker's Dracula adaptation by Francis Ford Coppola has all those scenes of um, Gary Oldman walking around in the daytime, which was probably a shock to everyone else who hadn't actually read the book and assumed that Dracula would be like every other vampire and burn up in the daylight. That's why they have in one line of uh, narration just mentioning that he can walk around in a daylight, he's just weakened. <laughs> so, so calm down, purists, I'm right on this one. So had you actually seen Nosferatu before this episode? Just vague clips, like the shadow ascending the stairs. Yeah, to me, I had seen it before, but the first time that I saw it, I'd also had this idea in my head that I had already seen it. It was kind of like the the Todd Browning Dracula in that way. It's just such a an iconic image that you think, well, it's so permeated in my brain, I must have seen it at some point. Yeah. And then you watch it and you go, oh, I don't remember that bit. <laughs> oh, wow, this is really strange. And it's had such an influence I, on... I also see that about the, the Todd Browning version as well, which is a lot more stagnantly directed, but there are all these really cool moments like mini coffins and... Dracula's pet armadillo. Aww. Yeah, it's just Jonathan walking up the stairs and there's all these various animals and then there's an armadillo because why not? I wonder what its name was. Jeff. Dilb. <laughs> Listeners, name Dracula's armadillo. <laughs> just imagining us having like a colouring contest now and it's a picture of Dracula <laughs> and an armadillo. He's holding it in his hands like a cat. <laughs> and it's also got that Gary Oldman white butt wig. <laughs> <laughs> it's just mandatory for all the uh, pets. And there's a mirror on the, behind him, and so you just see this floating armadillo. <laughs> Ghost armadillo. Feel free to actually draw that. <laughs> that would be yes, amazing. please draw that for us. <laughs> so anyway... Oh, if you haven't seen Nosferatu, you've really got no excuse because it's on YouTube, it's in the public domain. 
which is why if you go on YouTube and just type in Nosferatu, the first version of the film you'll see, all of the characters' names have reverted back to their names in Dracula. So Count Orlok is Count Dracula. Thomas Hutter is Jonathan. His wife Ellen is Mina and so on. Yep. Although there, is, there are still versions out there that do have the original change names. Um, there are actually a few copies on DVD. I borrowed one from the video library. Yes, those are still around somewhere. Um, and it also had um, Das Vampir, which is another German vampire film from about 10 years later. Which is incredible. We'll do that in another episode, because I haven't watched it for this one. <laughs> the basic plot of Nosferatu is a somewhat more stripped back version of Dracula. Yep, so yeah. there are elements that we don't have. There's no Lucy subplot, for example. There's She's no really kind of and her three men. There's None no Lucy that. and her boyfriends. There's Van Helsing is kind of relegated to like uh, the B squad. He's just kind of there. Yeah, he's just the not dude listening with his... to Lucy or Mina with his plant again. It's really just stripped down to. Jonathan, or Thomas, depending on which version you watch, living in Germany with his lovely wife, and he's sent by his employer, who in this version is Renfield, to go to Transylvania to sort out living arrangements for a new client. So once again, this is Dracula doing all of his property deals legit. The man knows a good investment. It's another case of Jonathan going off to the Carpathian Mountains, going to Transylvania, and not giving a shit about what the locals say. He actually openly laughs at them in a sort of Bond villain manner when they tell him to avoid that big castle. A bit... He's really every dickish tourist ever. Oh, there's a bit where he's been, he's been given a book on vampires and there's one bit where he's like reading it and he sort of laughs at the book and then just grinning, throws it on the ground like he's auditioning for a new Lonely Island music video. <laughs> No. I'm an adult. Vampires aren't real. I threw it on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but these locals go above and beyond their duty. Even when he's consistently, you know, dissing them, they're still like, no, dude, seriously, don't go there. Like, we'll take you so far, but we're not going to take it the whole way. Like, dude, seriously. Rule Always trust one. the locals when you go on holiday. Yeah. Or at least pick up, like, a phrase book or something, you know? Make the effort. <laughs> but as I said, the basic plot of Nosferatu is really kind of like the budget version of Dracula. So he goes and does his property deal. Uh, there's no brides, or weird sisters, I should say. It is really just this pathetic rat-like creature who's definitely not human. Not human in any real, you know, a vaguely distinguishable way, but he couldn't easily fit himself into society. And we're not kidding about the rat-like things. If you have watched it, you may have noticed his fangs are just two little pointy, like, bunny teeth. Or rat teeth. I just saw them as bunny teeth and just lost it. <laughs> it is equal parts grotesque and kind of hilarious. Uh, he has, you know, he's bald, he has pointy ears, he has very long fingernails, he has bushy eyebrows, he has a large nose. There are other connotations there we will get to but this sort of instant one that many people come to is rat-like and that's also because when he finally makes the voyage to Germany he brings a shitload of rats with him it's just amazing like where did you get all these rats 
Well, there doesn't seem to be anyone else living in this castle. This is another case of Dracula having to run around doing all of his own housework, or in this case, moving all of his own coffins. Yeah, they actually have vampire speedmo in the um, original Nosferatu. When he's bringing out all his coffins and all his, full of earth. <laughs> and it's just like, they've just sped it up a bit. And it's just... The thing is, in the remake, the Werner Herzog remake of Klaus Kinski, they don't do that. They just have this like slightly pathetic figure having to carry his own coffins very slowly. Yeah. I just thought it was funny that we have Vampire Speedmo all the way back in Nosferatu. <laughs> and it yeah, still looks about the same as like in True Blood. Some things never change. I like to think that was a retro decision in True Blood, but I feel it was budget. In this version as well, we have something that would become very popular in Dracula adaptations, which is a sort of mental tie between the vampire and Mina before, you know, he ever gets into her neck. She has these sort of trance-like moments where she sees him and she, you know, kind of senses what's happening to her husband. And then, of course, nobody believes her because patriarchy. There's actually a scene that's, uh, where she's basically got the book that proves that this is a vampire uh, that's doing all of this. It's not the plague, as everyone believes it to be. And people are just walking away from her. They're not listening. They're just pulling the whole, oh, you're a hysterical woman. Go back in before the plague gets you. So this is really one of the films where Mina is the active opponent to the vampire. And yet I imagine a lot of people viewing it today would not see her as an active opponent at all. Yeah, I think that they would see her as being more of that kind of passive victim. But we'll talk about that But we'll get to that eventually. (laughs) Some of the great iconic images of horror come from this film. There's Count Orlok's shadow going up the stairs. There's the reaching fingers across the bed. There's Count Orlok sitting upright in his coffin. There are shitloads of rats. Actually, the rats were treated better in the original film than they were in the remake. Werner Herzog was famously um, casual about his attitude towards animal rights. <laughs> but he arrives in town, ta- the boat arrives, and once the locals read the ship's log, which implies that they, they are dealing with the plague, the town understandably goes into lockdown because this is set in the 1830s in Germany. Yeah, this is actually, so this is a it's actually quite interesting that this is an adaptation that actually does touch on the Demeter. Yes, it doesn't it doesn't go into extreme detail about it, but it doesn't really go into extreme detail about any elements of the book. Yeah. It's far more hallucinogenic than that because it's part of the, the German expressionist style. But you actually do get stuff with the Demeter and some really good images. And apparently Wolverine is the captain. <laughs> He's just got these oh, massive like Wolverine the eyebrow game in general in this film it, it, it's pretty solid but yeah it does touch on the Demeter which is an element that a lot of Dracula adaptations just forget about me I think just an adaptation that is just the entire Demeter sequence would make for a fantastic claustrophobic horror movie but once we get past the Demeter and once everyone is basically trapped in their house believing the plague is coming and people are dropping dead left and right. Renfield escapes from the psychiatric ward he is eventually being committed to. In the beginning he's Jonathan's employer but he is instantly unhinged. Yeah, moment he's just sort of holding on until Jonathan goes and then the moment Jonathan is gone he's like, well 
Time to stop pretending to be sane. And it is basically that moment in like every Looney Tunes cartoon where the person who actually turns out to be evil waits until everyone else has left the room and then they spin in their chair laughing maniacally. There is some real maniacal laughing in this film. But he sort of runs off to the Count and the Count is kind of like, oh Christ, this is what I get for servants. I'll take solitude any day. Mm-hmm. And then if eventually it's up to Mina or Ellen, depending on what version you watch. Or Lucy. <laughs> or Lucy. The main woman. <laughs> your distaff counterpart. Uh, it's up to her to save the day. And she discovers that the way to defeat a vampire is for a woman of quote-unquote pure heart or pure of heart to basically distract him all through the night. So it's basically a case of you know her just lying there and being pretty and he goes into feed on her and is so distracted that he doesn't see the sun rising and he vanishes in a puff of smoke which is another really cool image yeah I, I imagine the theory is anyone could have distracted him long enough but sexism yeah if you haven't seen the remake of Nosferatu which is directed by everyone's favourite slightly unhinged German Werner Herzog <laughs> Uh, Herzog is infamously idiosyncratic. He's a guy who has made some of the most influential and bizarre movies of all time and has also been a guest star in Rick and Morty, Parks and Recreation and one of the Madagascar movies. And Nosferatu the Vampire, which is his version, was directed in 1979 and stars his muse slash nemesis Klaus Kinski as the Count, who in this version is just Dracula. I have to say, this is where things get interesting, because we're now getting adaptations of an adaptation. Yeah, this is some serious intertextuality. Because there's also another um, Nosferatu adaptation coming, being directed by the guy who directed The Witch. So it'll be interesting to see a really modern take on Nosferatu, whether they'll up the violence and the the death and the gore and the things like that or will they keep it slow and well from haunting? I haven't seen The Witch it yeah. did just come out here and I would love to see it but I'm a massive chicken like I, I will it on wait Wikipedia for yeah <laughs> um, but it's a period piece it's far more about mood and tension it's not really about jump scares and also about women it's about women and about goats so I feel like he's actually a really interesting choice for that. I hope he keeps it as dreamlike. I hope he keeps it in that particular time period. I don't think this would work modern day. No. I think you need that that period setting. 19th century, and I think it needs to be Europe. So I'm interested to see where that goes. The casting alone will fascinate me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with the Herzog version what it reminded me of and this will sound like a total slam but I don't mean it this way is it reminded me of when Gus Van Sant remade Psycho shot for shot they definitely had some shot for shot moments oh yeah but just in terms of tone in particular and imagery this one is obviously not silent film but it's not especially dialogue driven either I think part of that was because they actually filmed two versions of it, a German language and an English language. Yes, the version I saw, I believe, was dubbed into English. 
or it was I think they actually like filmed were... each scene yeah like they did with Harry Potter the first Harry Potter movie and they had to do the Sorcerer's Stone and the Philosopher's Stone sequence mm-hmm. but Which I think possibly why there is so little dialogue one to evoke the original um, movie but also just to cut down the amount of scenes they had to reshoot yeah Klaus Kinski was notoriously bad for reshoots as well so you know but this is Herzog he would have wanted to torture him and drive him to madness. Um, but the version I saw was... It was clearly filmed in English, but there was also a bit of dubbing to make up for some possible accent issues. Yeah, they did not sound Cause, German. Uh, no, because the lead actors are, you know, Klaus Kinski, Isabelle Jani, and Bruno Gans, who are German and French, respectively. Bruno Gans, you will probably know best for playing Hitler in Downfall. <laughs> also known as that movie where you got the Hitler Reacts clip from. And Isabella Jani you will have seen in many, many things, including the amazing and totally bonkers Possession, which, if you haven't seen it, Catherine, you need to watch it. I haven't seen it. It ruin your life. Wait, did you say it will ruin my life? No, I'm not going to see it then. <laughs> in the best way possible. It's like one of those horror movies that kind of lingers with you. Yeah, it, it looks like such a trashy horror movie as well, and it's so not what you expect. But it does have Sam Neill looking very confused. Now there's a New Zealander. <laughs> there you go. You got to watch out of patriotic loyalty. Uh huh. There are changes that the Herzog version makes. The main one being, I would argue, the ending. Because true to Herzog's melancholic spit, <laughs> uh, the vampires win in the end. It's the test of vampire ending. Without the leather. And the music. <laughs> I would totally sponsor a Herzog's Nosferatu musical. I feel like he'd be up for that. <laughs> so in this version, the Mina character is called Lucy, because that's never explained. It, she does the distraction of of the Count it kills him, it kills her but downstairs Jonathan has awoken from his sickness and he's now a vampire yeah, um, Mina has so- sorry, Lucy has sort of guessed that something might like this might happen because she, but, but going by what she's read in the book, she gets um, the, the consecrated host I assume that's right, I'm not Christian <laughs> and just sort of breaks it up and puts it in a circle like you know a modern girl watching Supernatural would do with salt and um, then goes up and does a thing and he wakes up and he's like telling all these people what to do and then he has to wait for the cleaning maid to sort of just sweep away and he just sort of steps out more like he's in something like um, what we do with the shadows It's the ending is quite comedic once everyone's dead it is bizarre like I assume it's intended to be comedic because I think that people assume Werner Herzog doesn't have a sense of humour where all you have to do is watch interviews to know that he does. But it feels weirdly kind of rushed. Basically Van Helsing finally decides to be active participant in something and has to dispatch of the Count once and for all. And then Jonathan orders that he be arrested for murdering the Count and then there's this weird kind of Arrest that man! What for? 
Arrest him? But there's not anybody to arrest. We're only here. Are we supposed to arrest him? Where, not a I don't, where are we going to take him? <laughs> it is really strange. It's like, you're the only person working for the council. Just arrest him. I don't have anything to arrest him with. <laughs> Meanwhile, Van Helsing is just saying, yes, I killed the man, and waving this gigantic stake covered in red paint. Really neatly done red paint as well. Like, yeah. someone spent a lot of time putting that paint on that stake. And it just looks like paint. Yeah, it doesn't look anything remotely close to anything other than paint. Which must have been a stylistic choice. Because it's a very, very drab film in terms of colour. They're trying to recreate, in many ways, the original black and white stylings. And it's a, it's a very drab area of Germany, it's very drab weather. When Jonathan heads to Transylvania, there's a lot of travel scenes, and it's very drab. Mm. So this is really kind of the only moment of colour that we get. And it's it's not even necessarily that gaddish. It's just kind of shiny. Very cheap looking paint. Mm. It's shiny. It's like gloss paint. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like, like it's nail polish. Yes, that's it. It looks like nail polish. But I hope it's not nail polish because that would have been expensive. All that nail polish, like it's it's this massive fence post, just <laughs> covered like I... a foot in red. So we have that ending where Jonathan is now sort of taking up the and the adventure continues. <laughs> Big question mark at the end. Uh, he continues. back, and he's you know basically continuing on, whereas at the end of the original version it's all over. Basically, the the crumbling remains of the Count's estate are going to be left to rot out. Yeah, she has, yeah she has saved her husband, and he's grieving in the original. In this case, yeah, she, it's like, she it's a noble sacrifice in the original, but in the remake, it was with jack shit. Well, for regarding her husband, it was jack shit. She saved the, the what was left of the town. Well, did she? Yeah, there, we were, don't those, know what there were those people who were having their last supper. That scene's really interesting. And of course, you say that old guy who didn't know who to arrest. (laughs) But basically, before the final confrontation, she's wandering through the town square, and... There's dead people everywhere. There's dead people everywhere, but there's also just people partying. So there's a bunch of people who brought a table out, and they're having a feast, and there's rats everywhere, and they're just like, hey, you got to enjoy your time on this planet while you can. Yeah. They they specifically say here have something to drink you know just join us we've um we've all got the plague we're just going to enjoy the last of our days which you know I would totally be doing in that situation <laughs> because you know just go out just spend time with my friends have nice food which is basically what they're doing okay so we'll le- we we are going to be touching on Shadow of the Vampire which is the meta fiction film about the making of um the original Nosferatu with the concept of Max Shrek being an actual vampire but we'll touch upon that later and we'll just look at Nosferatu at the moment so first of all Bloodsucking Feminists I know you guys on the, the, there are guys on the internet who hate that name but suck it your hate uh, makes us stronger suck it um, <laughs> that took me too long to get that <laughs> um, women women in Nosferatu there's only three of them. 
You've got it's really only one of significance. Yeah, so. you've got Ellen slash Mina slash Lucy, <laughs> her well, her female friend who was married to a rich friend of theirs, Lucy or Mina or what was her what's her name in the original film? She wasn't really. Um, well, there's Annie? Helen. Oh, Annie. Annie was her name. Annie married to Shipona Harding. Basically, just the roles seem very interchangeable because, you know, the everyone is obviously knowing that Mina is Ellen, but then in the remake, Ellen becomes Lucy, and the friend becomes Mina when she was Annie, which is the Lucy. This is what happens when you do Control F. I'm surprised that they didn't just like change a letter. So like, oh, it's Nina and Luce. <laughs> I would have admired the, the sheer guts of that. Yep. So there's there? basically three women. There's okay four if I'm looking at the cast list, but really you just have. I'll stick with the original Nosferatu names, aka the the Christian and Anastasia. So. We've got Ellen, we've got her friend Annie, and the just the the old local lady who makes the bed. And there's also a nurse. But really, there's only one female character. So this film does not pass the Bechdel-Wallace test, and not just because there is no actual talking. <laughs> Even if there was dialogue, I don't think there would have been any Bechdel-Wallace passing, because Annie is sort of second to her husband, who's the one who's off rescuing and doing things with um, Ellen. But it is worth pointing out that one of the reasons that the people suffer so are, is because they don't listen to her when she's really kind of presenting evidence as to what the problem is. Yeah. Particularly, it's, it's very emphasised in the remake where Van Helsing himself is essentially calling her a hysterical woman and you know, I know things are really tough for you right now sweetie but let's you know let, let's let the men deal with this we're all going to die and then at the end he's like I should have listened to her he actually says out loud I should have listened to her bit late now oh well better go get that feds post <laughs> oh the edges are so beautifully done but for all the lack of female characters Ellen is a surprisingly strong one. You can see a lot in Greta Schroeder's face as she's making her decisions, as she's thinking, as she's worrying, as she's considering making the sacrifice. You know, you can see her going, okay, I know what I have to do. You can see her pulling together her resolve, her her being terrified and through it, it where she, she's getting ready for it but her stealing herself and doing it and knowing she is making what she believes is the right choice. She's very logical, but I think that's something that goes back to the text as well. You yeah, know, Mina's Mina, an educated woman. Yeah, Mina is very very logical. She's good at putting together think, putting things together. Yeah, you see that as well when she, the first time she really confronts the Count, where she just admits, more to herself than anything else, that She's aware that her husband is in dire straits and it's not going to end well. Yeah, it's a great scene in the remake where he shows up and she's just like, you know, she, her back is perfectly straight. She's like, well, she actually sort of shows off her neck with a cross around it. So it's like, you want this? No. And she just sort of stands up to him and 
is clearly intimidated by him, but she's standing strong. And that continues on when she makes her decision. She can see her just sort of trembling and trying to control herself as the Count is approaching and still fighting even in her last moments of death to hold him still. And then when daylight comes, she's just, good, I did it. Patriarchy sucks. Yep. <laughs> Down with the patriarchy. <laughs> but it's not just uh, the way that people that Lucy slash Mina slash Helen slash whatever is ignored by the men in the story to their ultimate demise, but it's the way that the men just act in general. <laughs> like, it, Jonathan is kind of an ignorant, privileged dude in the book. But, and I think this is just particularly because of the type of acting that they're doing in the story. It's very stylized. There's not a drop of realism in this piece. But when he meets those locals, he's just maniacally laughing at them for daring to believe that actually you're going to be killed by vampires. Yeah, again, it's that he threw it on the ground segment where he's just like, ha, these local peasants and their beliefs. Sounds silly. <laughs> but it's interesting because one of the themes of this story that has been discussed often regarding the symbolism of pestilence, immigration, and particularly anti-Semitism in this piece, the the fear of the outsider that when Jonathan does go to this new land, to Eastern Europe, it is his ignorance and dismissal of that land that does get him hurt. So be afraid of tourists. Well, just in general, yeah. <laughs> okay, so just before we leave the role of women and, I guess, the role of men behind, um, I know, as I said before, from a modern perspective, a lot of people would look at Ellen and think she is a very weak and submissive female character who is very passive and things like that. But would you would you agree with that? Or would you say she's actually a very strong um, assertive for the film and the role and position? Or somewhere in the middle? I think historical and cultural context is key. This is 1922. It's really the very beginnings of film and it's also part of the German expressionist movement where it was more about mood, it was more about imagery and the way that you acted had to fit in with that particular kind of imagery so there's a lot of big movements there's a lot of wide eyes there's a lot of interpretive dance style acting like you think they're going to start breaking out into mime at any moment well the makeup would fit yes there's a lot of dark eyes, there's a lot of dark hair uh, to really emphasise on black and white. Um, so I think that the role that she has in this film very much fits with that. I think it's also fits with the, the adaptation that they're doing because they obviously couldn't do the ending to the book because they don't have the money for a massive chase scene. So they had to like scale it down a little bit. Yeah, they probably spent a lot of their money going on location to... Um... Hungary and things. Was it Hungary or was it Czechoslovakia? I think it's Hungary. The sequel was Czechoslovakia. Um, not the sequel. The remake was Czechoslovakia. Oh, Slovakia was the, the locations in Transylvania. So it's Orava Castle. As for her choices in the movie, uh, I mean, I don't like it when the woman just has to die to save the men. Not that, you know, I well, 
is part of the larger theme of women dying to save the dumb man. I'm not a big fan of it, but it's very clear that this is all her act of choice. No one else is really pushing her into it. You know, she's making her plan. She makes sure her husband is out of the house to keep him safe. Then she's up at the window. She's basically saying, yeah, come over. And it's all her plan to do it. It's not, okay, um, Lucy, Mina, Ellen, you're going to do this. You're going to act as bait. And then us men are going to come in and stake him. It's entirely her. Which is not something we see in a lot of other adaptations. It's where, where the woman is the bait. Do you have anything else to add to that? No, I think that's pretty astute way to put it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not great, but historically and culturally speaking in terms yeah. of that context, it's uh, really kind and of... And within the, the context of the story, it's very clear that this is all her choice. She's looking at it, so, okay, we've got no other options, I'm just going to do it. And nobody else is listening to her, yeah. because men don't listen. Yep, so she's just going to make sure people she care about is safe, and then she's just going to do this to take make sure everyone else is safe. Okay, so as we've discussed before in our Dracula episode, and probably a lot of things afterwards, one of the big themes of Dracula is the fear of the foreigner. You know, they'll come in, they'll bring in plagues, or um, attack the women, or and we're actually seeing a lot of this being spoken about now with um, the refugee crisis, well, the current refugee crisis. You know, these people with their foreign ways, and they're going to come and sexually assault out women, and things like that. But because of the time period and the setting, um, 1920s Germany, there is the um, anti-Semitism of the period that adds... Well, it's not set in the anti-1920s. No, but, I mean, but the filming of it. It's con- it's set in 1830s yeah. Germany, but it's obviously filmed in 1922. Um, to give it a little context, the Nazi party was founded in 1920. And, of course, just being in this time period... Well, there's a very famous uh, piece of f- film criticism by Siegfried Krakauer called From Caligari to Hitler, and it came out two years after the Second World War ended. And the hypothesis that he puts forward is that the films of the German Expressionist era from Dr. C- the cabinet of Dr. Caligari through to the work of people like F.W. Morneau to people like Fritz Lang, who made Metropolis and M., was that these films were filled with the inevitability of Nazism. That their style, that their tone were about the the way that Germany as a whole was moving towards this particular brand of political extremism. Um, This is a very popular reading of German Expressionism, but it's one that's also been heavily disputed, particularly by other German critics. Um, who point out that Krakauer basically admitted he hadn't seen Nosferatu in about 20 years when he wrote this criticism. He ignores a lot of you know, key context and his research is a little bit spotty. So it's an interesting idea, but it's you know one that does a lot of reaching. It's kind of like your, the first essay you write in university where you want to prove how really smart you are. <laughs> and you cite like no sources. Yeah, well with all sort of text everything is influenced by the world around us whether we think we are or not and so even if it wasn't you know intentionally steeped in the um environment that would lead to more overt um anti-semitism 
in film, let's say. Um, it's in there. I mean, it's pretty overt. Yeah. This is 1920s Germany. It, this is already a time where a lot of establishments are refusing entry to Jewish people. There's a lot of fear, particularly the Eastern European Jews. There's a lot um, of fear of travelers. And the idea that they are going to bring filth and disease and pestilence to Germany. Oh, well, and look obviously what... we see that here because what, is, what does the Count bring? He brings rats. They bring plagues. And if you look at, and I would you know, tread very carefully when you look into this history, if you look at a lot of the imagery of you know, hundreds of years prior to this, if you look at the way that uh, Jewish people, particularly uh, Jewish religious figures, are depicted in these art fi- uh, pieces. There's a lot of hooked noses, there's a lot of bushy eyebrows, there's the malicious grin, there's the long tendril-like fingers. There's, uh, They're distinctly inhuman in the way they're drawn. Yeah, if you, if you looked at um, a bunch of popular memes that are in certain parts of the internet today for <laughs> yeah basically yeah, the... look up the mentions of any tweet or Anita Sarkeesian has yep. ever oh, said there we go. Yeah, despite the fact that Anita Sarkeesian is Armenian and not Jewish but that doesn't stop anti-Semites she's vaguely foreign Cause, yeah I mean, pretty much and they're not very subtle about it I mean I've, you've seen the mentions of Anita Sarkeesian yeah, they're, about... they're not subtle about it so apply this to actually just Dracula in general because this a lot of this is in the text maybe not the specific aesthetic elements but the idea of a a swarthy strange looking and he is described as being kind of strange and unattractive Eastern European with designs on the property of in the book London but in this film it's Germany Bisma. he's got a lot of money he's you know coming over here to take your land to attack your women and to bring sickness to the masses. So you have this count who is bald, who is pointed eared, who has incredibly long fingernails very bushy eyebrows these two front teeth that are like rodents you know it's not hard to put the dots together here and of course, what does it take to stop the count? It takes a woman who is pure of heart. A good Christian woman. A He's repelled Christian. by the cross. Um, I do think it's interesting to look at in the context of um, modern Dracula adaptations with the um, more explicit um, entwining with Vlad the Impaler's history. Because now you see a lot of um, adaptations where he was you know, the defender of the Christian faith, but was punished for either, for some various reason by the Christian God or not even for denying his own Christian faith but for some other reason you know the original text and earliest adaptations portray Dracula as a well Jewish type figure a Jewish figure or at least you know the the current fear of the Jewish people did I make any sense there? yeah I mean we, we have to preface this as we did in previous episodes that neither of us are Jewish there is. Uh, that won't excuse any mistakes we may have made and we yeah. do apologise for that uh, there is a lot of research out there we'll link to it on our website because there's an incredible amount of academia on this yeah. it's just sort of and I, the, the context is very important because it's important for 
it's not important for all cultural criticism, but particularly with this era of film, German expressionism is hugely lauded and often hugely misunderstood. And given how influential it was on everyone from, you know, well, Hitchcock, Orson Welles, at this, t- this is the time when Universal started making their own horror movies and you can watch something like the original Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera. There's a lot of German expressionism in the way they handle the shadows there. And that's one of the uh, rebuttals that Bachauer's theory about German expressionism faced was actually this had nothing to do with you know, predicting Nazism. This was really just about making an aesthetic choice to stand out against the American competition. So this is also something that I think is worth noting in terms of the way that the remake kind of steps around it. Yeah. Uh, because the makeup that Kinski wears is very clearly evocative of the original, but there are noticeable changes. The eyebrows are gone, the nose is less prominent. And even in um, the meta-text Shadow of the Vampire... It is less, you know. Yeah, and it's especially noticeable if you've watched Dracula right before watching Shadow of the Vampire, like I did, because they actually reenact some of the sequences and it shows up very differently in the black and white esque footage, footage. So you can tell exactly what they've trimmed down. The nose is smaller, they've, they've really just noticeably reduced the. Um, anti-Semitic um, elements of his features. Not entirely, because then you'd get a different-looking character. But it's they've very obviously looked at it and gone, yeah, we need to do something about this. Of course, and then they put a swastika in the background of one of the scenes. So, Yeah, there's some historical awareness going on in that film. It's actually a really fascinating film. I think we should well, touch upon it now, because... It's very rare that you get to see this kind of metatextual drama made and have it be a relatively mainstream film. This was Oscar-nominated for Willem Dafoe's performance. And it was produced by Nicolas Cage. (laughs) (laughs) How to get bitten! How to get bitten! (laughs) The rats! The rats! Not the rats! My eye! <laughs> but it's actually, you know, it's a really fascinating movie. It's very accurately made in terms of its setting and its era. It's got some wonderful moments of humour. Just the idea that you would hire a real vampire to make a vampire movie. And he's like, God damn it, you can't eat my crew! <laughs> There's a really funny scene where they're setting up a shot and one of the actors is getting makeup put on and Max Shrek, the actual vampire, goes, I would like some makeup. He goes, no, you don't get makeup. Oh, This is really sad. <laughs> I was like, no, you can't eat the crew. I was like, just one. No. And uh, meanwhile, Carrie Elwes shows up partway through the thing and he's just like, uh He's just still got, um, like, the character is just somehow realising that he's already dealt with vampires before and he's just like, I'm done with this. Because um, a lot of the cast have previously been in vampire films before. Um, Carrie Owens obviously was in Bram Stoker's Dracula. But Willem Dafoe was guy in phone box number two in The Hunger. Yeah, phone box guy number two. <laughs> 
Urukir is Dracula in the Andy Warhol produced version, Blood for Dracula, which is fascinating. Like, we will have to do that movie one day. There's some top-notch blood gargling in that movie. There's also some amazing missing limb stuff. Like, Black Knight and Holy Grail level hilarious. Yeah, okay. Defoe's actual title was Second Phone Booth Youth. (laughs) Ah, the classics. I will say Shadow the Vampire does feature that oft underrated trope, the heroic cinematographer. This character always basically flies in to take over from the cinematographer because the other one got eight. Yeah. Well, he's alive. He's just... He's having a tough time. Yeah, he's traumatized. As you would. Yeah, he just sort of flies in, you know, casually mentions he dabbles in a little recreational drugs, you know. One of the things that Shadow of the Vampire emphasizes more that is a theme in the original movie, but it's not touched on as much because it's, you know, more about mood than plot, is the loneliness of the vampire. So there's basically a scene where Max Shrek kind of confesses all <laughs> uh, to just how, you know, lonely he is and he can't remember how to make other vampires, but he does remember the woman who made her, but can't remember her face and everyone's watching this is just like, wow, these method actors are amazing. Yeah. Like the Daniel D. Lewis of his time. <laughs> there's also a bit where he's criticising the actual text of Dracula pointing out the ridiculousness of this guy who lives alone but still, still you know, for all these years, but still knows, you know, how to pretend to be as, all the things that servants need to do and um, the legalities <laughs> of buying property and things like that. Just a typical actor. He's not grateful for the role at all. Well, he's not an actor. He's not this Russian guy. (laughs) (laughs) I love how easily everyone buys that as well, because it's just like, well, actors be crazy. And he's Russian. You know those Russians. Oh, the Russians. Basically, by the the, towards the end of filming, Bruno, the director who is high for a lot of this, by the way. I would just like to point um, out, Max Shrek in this and Shadow of the Vampire is still easier to work with than Greta Schroeder. <laughs> Actresses, am I right? Yeah. But Murno, who is on a lot of laudanum, because it's the 1920s. Everyone's on something. Yes. But isn't that what uh, Seward is on in the book? Like, he at least mentions taking laudanum and then everyone turns that into a morphine addiction. Well, Greta Schroeder was into the morphine in the Shadow of the Vampire. So you have Murnau kind of realising, actually we're stuck with this guy um, we're probably going to have to kill him or make a few sacrifices. Hey Greta! You're a joy to work with. So they essentially drug her with laudanum and kind of leave her as a sacrifice. Hmm? Laudanum was the stuff that the servants used to drug um, themselves or and everything in Lucy's house. But they basically have to get rid of Shrek and they use this as a chance to film their end. Because, you know, you've always got to get the shot. This film basically makes Myrna look like Lars von Trier, David O. Russell and Alejandro and Yara too kind. And he uses it at the end. Everyone's just dying. And he's like... Ugh help, can't find it, can it, somebody help me pick up the shot because my, my crew isn't doing anything. <laughs> They're all dead <laughs> on the floor. Carnage, and he's like, I think we got it. Yeah. Yeah, he just, he just completely shut down. He's just gone. Was the real Murno that 
difficult to work with. Let's look this up. Apparently he was a really nice guy and that's why there was a... <laughs> you know, like, the opposite of Werner. You know, real comp- real artist and nice guy. Ah, the film's depiction of Myrna is ruthless and dictatorial is also wrong. He was known as a genius director with rare sensitivity. Oh. Yeah, it also notes that... I'm pretty that- sure it was um, Fritz Lang who was really, really difficult to work with. Yeah, um, it also mentions, you know, that historically a lot of the people killed in this movie actually lived to be quite a long time. Carrie Owa's character lived to the 1950s. Um, Udo Kier's character... 1970s. That was um, Myrna who died in 1931 in a car crash. She was the one who died soonest. Um, Greta Schroeder had a film career until the 50s. So yeah, it's obviously very fictional. And not just the fact that vampires are real. Well, obviously. (laughs) There are some weird people in Wellington. (laughs) Those bloody hipsters. There's also, um, if you've seen the most recent season of American Horror Story, in that their version of F.W. Morneau is a vampire. And you just stand on the sidelines shouting, Shadow of the Vampire did that first! (laughs) One of the elements I think we have to talk about with Shadow of the Vampire in particular is considering it stands as a piece of meta text, the way that it kind of strips all kinds of autonomy from the Mina slash Helen slash Lucy stand-in. In this case, you know, the actress. She's portrayed as being... A bitch. A little... Basically, she's difficult. Which is an awful, awful term. She's the difficult her. actress. You know, she talks about the sacrifices to her career by not doing theatre and why couldn't they have filmed in this location because then she could have been involved in the theatre community. And it's such. And a then she gets high on from, morphine. Yeah, and it's such a contrast from Eddie Ezard, who's playing the the Jonathan actor, who just seems like a swell guy. Yeah, he just sort of you know he occasionally brings up some interesting information, but he's just sort of <laughs> he's really exposition Eddie. Yeah, I think he actually. Ex- I hear is a method actor from Russia, and he just sort of swans in. Yeah, it's just like oh wait, you were here. <laughs> Meanwhile, but in this version, she's really chosen against her will to be kind of the, the bait. She, which returns to that vampire trope that is so overused. Yeah, and it's not even intentional at the beginning. They're just trying to film the scene and she there's a mirror behind her and so she can see a reflection but not um, Count Orlok's and she freaks out. And like, we need to film. just And she's supposed to be unconscious for the scene anyway. Let's just put some drugs in her and she'll just, you know, sleep through the entire thing. It's good. It's good. That's it. what happened. They decided, well, let's drug her so we can get the shot. It's not even a deliberate sacrifice. It's just all about getting the shot. The other men are like, uh, what? After a time and leap in to try and save her. But promptly get there. Well, one gets their neck broken and one... I forget what happens to the one that wasn't Carrie Alwes. <laughs> so does John Malkovich, to be honest. Yeah, he's still. So, do you think the film is being like a parody of that kind of obsessively driven artiste, or do you think it really does kind of commit to the idea that this is all for a kind of greater good? Um... So, I think it kind of wavers because there's so much about the pain of the craft, but also 
actually, this film is pretty good. It describes itself as a horror comedy, but it's not really comedy, and there's not too much horror in it. No, I actually find tonally it was it was very interesting. Because I don't think it's a comedy either, but I don't think it's a horror either. It's, I mean, is metatext a genre? It's far more interested with dwelling on those comparisons and connotations than anything else. It's a, a modern view of um, vampires and horror put, trying to put over a, an older text and film. And for that, I really do think it is worth watching, even if you haven't seen Nosferatu. But once again, public domain, you've got no excuse. It also features some fabulous Eddie Azard silent acting. <laughs> and everyone's just going, well, it'll do. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've got the, the nice guy actor who's not so great at the acting versus the, the extremely talented, um, problematic actress. Um, but she's so talented. And she was a real talent in her time. She wasn't just an actress. She was also a writer and director. Yeah. But here they just portray but, you her know, as... women. Yeah. But here they I just... guess there is also that parallel. She notices before any of the other dudes... And they don't guy... listen to her! Yeah. They actively shut her up with drugs. Meanwhile, Orlok is like, huh, what's going on? Why does she like me? I just want to do the same. <laughs> Meanwhile, nobody's like, dude, he's being kind of just creepy towards her. This, plus, you know, and the director and this, um, he actually basically says, no, you can't have her yet. Basically saying, once we're filmed, you can have Greta yes. Schoener, I don't care. Do you think that was in his official contract? <laughs> Do you think he actually had a contract? Well, he seems to know the ins and outs of property law. Yes, but just because you're into property law doesn't mean you're into, you know, entertainment law. <laughs> That's when you get problems with, you know, one type of lawyer um, trying to defend themselves or do something that's not in their experience. This is why the lack of a vampire Supreme Court is going to kill us all. I would watch that show. Nosferatu for SCOTUS. <laughs> would the Republicans approve? <laughs> they would have Trump voted him in. <laughs> um, I think we've kind of done all we can with Shadow of the Vampire. How about we touch on Renfield? Yeah, Okay. So we mentioned, I think we've mentioned almost every episode we've done, actually, you can learn a lot about a Dracula adaptation by how it treats its Renfield. Yeah, because remember, in the original book, Renfield was just this guy in the um, Seward's hospital that happened to be particularly sensitive to Dracula's arrival and suffered for it. There's no actual explanation as to why he is um, in the hospital, is there? Besides the fact, you know, he's crazy and eats animals. No, the the real thing to emphasize is when Dracula starts, he is already in a very vulnerable position, Renfield. You know, he is isolated. He is instantly dismissed as being a loony. He's studied, but not really empathized with. And I think that this film is actually one of the first films that really put that strong emphasis on Renfield equals not just mentally ill but um, to use the derogative term, crazy and you know, in the book he's not really a violent man he's described as having a, you know, our favourite well, violent except for the fact temperament ripping apart small animals well other than that, but he's described as having a sanguine temperament, our favourite word but he of also has he periods of you know, real depression and he and tries to help see in, um, our hero, the heroes of Dracula 
in his last moments. Yes, he actively helps them, which ends terribly for him. But, you know, he was already suffering from delusions. Whereas in this version, he is Jonathan's boss. And he is just instantly at, like, Nicolas Cage levels of, (laughs) there's something not right about this guy. He basically sends Jonathan to Transylvania to visit a new client, and his his suggestion is, why don't you just move him in house next to yours? You guys can be neighbours. And then he kind of cackles. Yeah, and then when Jonathan leaves, he's like, well, I'm done, and pops off to the asylum. And There's he- also like a vaguely comedic moment when his, he's called Knock, yeah. but he's in the asylum, and there's like a Benny Hill style moment where he kind of sneaks out of his cell and the <laughs> guard goes in and he locks him out and then he sort of runs around and you can hear Yakte Sax playing in your head. And then the bit where he's just up on the roof and they're like, how did he get up there? But there's almost like, I don't know if this is just modern day hindsight or the changing of horror tastes or whatever, but he's just so ludicrous that it can kind of comes across as a little camp. And I think that's partly the German expressionist style, you know. There's lots of very expressive hand gestures. The makeup is very overdone. The eyebrows. <laughs> he he oh, looks a yeah, lot like um, when I was watching. I'm like, what is Jim Carrey's um, Count Olaf doing here? <laughs> oh my god, that is exactly what he looks like. And so we've seen in future adaptations that you know, Renfield does have a previous connection with Dracula. That he is sort of this pre the previous lawyer who that Jonathan's taking over from and things like that and probably it does stem from Nosferatu you know it obviously has that whole conservation of characters thing going on the one thing that the book Dracula had is lots of words and lots of random characters who die and leave people money in the book the character who is really kind of well the one that we always think of as being more self-preservational is usually Arthur Holmwood you know, particularly when you get into Kim Newman's Anno Dracula books. <laughs> uh, in the remake of Nosferatu, Renfield is committed to an asylum because he bites a cow. You don't see the cow biting. But... <laughs> yeah, I was like, I thought I missed this. <laughs> yeah, there was lots of cows. It was in between that one kid with a violin. <laughs> oh god, the kid with the violin. Um, so every remake, <laughs> there is a small child practicing their violin. He's, you know, he's just sort of sitting, standing outside the castle practicing his violin. There's a bit where um, Jonathan has escaped from the castle by, you know, ripping up his sheets and tying them together in the, the classic sheet bed rope thing. And, but he falls out part of the way and hits the ground and sort of loses consciousness. And when daylight comes and he's still semi-unconscious, he's, there's, this, there's that kid just standing over him practicing his, practicing his violin. He's everywhere when you don't want him to be. <laughs> He's a time he lord. know that Herzog like, found that child in a village. It was just like, you want to be in my movie? I don't know. Just bring a violin, come on. <laughs> it's just completely random. But there is a scene in the remake where Renfield finally kind of runs off to be the stooge of the Count, and the Count basically flicks his him away with his hand like he's a fly. Yeah, that Redfield ate. It's sort of like a shoe movement, you know? Like he's, like he's trying to get a dog off the furniture. He's just like, ugh, this guy. 
Yeah, a guy so lonely that he has to carry his own coffins off the ship. Even he doesn't want to have to deal with Renfield. <laughs> what does he think of little child with violin? He takes requests, I would imagine. You know, <laughs> just and imagining him sitting there just clapping his hands. <laughs> I can imagine the um the shadow of the vampire, Max Shrek, enjoy doing that. He would probably be quite happy with the little child just playing this because he's that sort of dork. It's that loneliness element. Um, this is obviously one of the biggest kind of angles, particularly in the remake. Um, you know, obviously the appearance is part of this, but Count Orlock is just a really pathetic little figure. You know, he shirks away from movement. He kind of mumbles to himself when he does the, you know, the children of the night, what music they make line, which is in this film. It's obviously the big line in Dracula. When he says it, it just sounds really sad. There's no drama there. There's not even any unconscious camp. It's just, oh, honey. So when you actually get to the scene where he feeds from Mina slash Lucy, it's a really kind of strange, like, scavenger moment. You can actually hear the slurping. You know, it's a desperate ravenous kind of movement but it's not even like a predator it's someone who's kind of picking at the scraps with these tiny little teeth at the front but the the, the particular kind of vampire that Dracula slash Orlok is in this it's very influential in terms of aesthetic but you don't see as many adaptations going for that more pathetic element they prefer him Suave. They prefer him sexy. They prefer Gary kind of a, a tortured, a tortured romantic in a way where he has canines in the proper place and some hair. Yeah, because well, not, Count Olaf is a specific adaptation of Dracula, whereas there are many different other versions of Dracula, especially as we got into the um, combined flood, the Impaler Draculas. There's been a shift. People definitely prefer their vampires sexy. I have no problem. No, I'm that. not complaining. It's just it's <laughs> I'm not complaining, you know, when Ian Summerhalder has no shirt on or whatever. <laughs> but the vampire as the monster definitely has lessened in um, Dracula adaptations particularly. He's become the anti-hero, the tragic um, hero who's become a monster, especially in adaptations where he falls in love with Mina and or Lucy or Mina and occasionally once or twice Lucy is the reincarnation of um, one of, Ugh, of his wife. I that trope. Which is kind of, yeah, I, yeah, that was like my first thing in the NBC Dracula watch was, was like, oh, no, 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 no. oh god damn it, it's a reincarnated Mina show. Yeah. And then I just went into a derail of um, all the different details about his wives. Yeah, we don't really see the, the monstrous lonely vampire. We occasionally see the monstrous vampire in um, larger horror films in which the plague is. You know, the you're what, trying to think of examples of recent ones where they're highly monstrous. Um, 30 Days of Night. 30 Days of Night. I Am Legend. But that's based yeah. on an older book, so that probably doesn't quite... It's post Dracula, so it's post. Yeah, well, everything's post Dracula except for Carmilla and the vampire. And I'll need to check on um, the vampire maid. I think it's that might be post Dracula. 
Um, but if you look at the vampire movies of the past few years, it's stuff like Byzantium or Only Lovers Left Alive, Vampire Moth Academy, Moth Diaries, What We Do in the Shadows. Maybe Moth Diaries, we don't know yet. <laughs> um, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Well, remember, What We Do in the Shadows also has an Osferatu. I would say, I think, the most recent version of the truly monstrous vampire that's in the public consciousness would be The Strain. Yeah, oh yeah. The Guillermo del Toro, Chuck Hogan book, and the TV show of the same name. Those vampires are, you know, it's a parasite transferred through a worm that turns you into a a bald, genital-free mutant that has a, basically like a grabber style worm that comes out of your throat and that's how you feed I mean it's proper disturbing is there anything else you want to say about the influence on um, Nosferatu on um, film and vampire literature and things like that well I think it's one of the necessary texts in vampire fiction really it's one of the, the foundations you know you need to see it only because you need to see the context for that really cool gif you've seen of the shadow going up the stairs. And that's been parodied in many of other things. Yes. But it, all things considered, considering how many times it's been copied or ripped off or parodied... Which is funny because you know, This holds itself. up in a way that I don't think the Todd Browning Dracula film does. And I wonder if that's just because it's dialogue-free. And because everyone's imitated Bela Lugosi's accent, you know? Whereas this one, it's all about the imagery. It's all about the mood. It's all about those, you know, the shadows and the stairs and the archways of the door and, you know. The, the things that are coming. Yes, Which that foreboding sense. You're because being a lot of people complain about the original book being really slow, but it's building so much atmosphere as it does so. Mm-hmm. Just the the slowly people recording all the weird things that are sort of happening, and as a reader, you know what's going on, but the characters yeah. don't. If you prefer plot over, you know, mood, then it's probably not for you. But just to see, you know, what was scaring people you know, ninety years ago, and the cinematic techniques that have been copied by everyone from Hitchcock to every, you know. 21 year old film student who wants to make a horror movie plus as I said earlier there is another remake coming out Yes. so it's always good to have a look at what came before as far as we know it's still in pre-production it may stay in pre-production we don't know you know movies do not always move forward yeah but um, I think Nosferatu has the right name and history to it for a, a remake to go on and actually be made and for from what I hear about the director of The Witch it does seem like an appropriate choice Yes. looks like that's it for Nosferatu Nosferatu the Vampire and Shadow of the Vampire this was episode 11 thank you for joining us for episode 11 we'll see you next month for episode 12 our last one for our Bloodsucking Feminist year It'll be our last one before we do our 13th episode, aka our first anniversary. And we will be doing Fright Night, both the original and the remake with David Tennant as Chris Angel. You can fo- so if you want to get in touch, you can get in touch with us through Twitter. We're at Bloodsucking Femme, 
via email at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That's fangmail with a G because we love our puns. Please don't send us hate mail. Do use us to piss off misogynists, but please don't send us hate mail. We'll just laugh. <laughs> um, if you do send us any mail, we'll read it out online or talk about it, give you a shout out. So if you want us to say hello, that's all good. We also tweet quite extensively on our own Twitter Twitters. You can probably find us through the website and everything as well. We'll see you next month. Remember, it's Fright Night.